Hello, this is Vanessa Knight. I am so excited. Welcome to our very first podcast for Any Schoolers, a nonprofit organization that serves homeschooling families all over the United States and online. We're excited today to get to interview the author Katie Rybakova, who wrote This is Homeschooling Stories of Unconventional Learning Practices on the Road and in Nature. Um, her book came out in July, and we had the opportunity to interview her the very first week of its publication. Um, it's available on Amazon, and you can grab your copy after listening to how wonderful and delightful she is. We're a bunch of unsocialized feral heathens who aren't limited by the confines of a cinder block building for the first 18 years of our lives. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to get to talk to you about your book today. Yeah, absolutely. Hi. <laughs> Let's start with um, just a, a starter question. What was the impetus for beginning to collect these stories in This Is Homeschooling? So I really was inspired by alternative education. Uh, a little bit of background about me. I'm actually a professor working with teachers. So I'm in teacher preparation. I'm the chair of the Lunder School of Ed at Thomas College and an associate professor. And what I find really interesting about education is that we do so much focus on public education, public schooling. Um, we have really great teachers who work in public schools, um, but we also don't really talk about the other options for families that might work better for them. So, for instance, private schools, charter schools, and homeschooling, particularly homeschooling, uh, sometimes just isn't on the radar for some families who might really find it really interesting to do that, might find, you know, public school doesn't work for them, or private school doesn't work for them, charter school, et cetera, et cetera. So, I started consuming literature, both scholarship, right, peer-reviewed articles, and books about homeschooling. I couldn't get enough. I was so interested in it. I, I thought this was so neat. I loved hearing other people's stories. But what I found was that I was really craving a book that gave me all sorts of different stories, more stories and different stories, stories not about how to do it right, but rather how to do it. How, how, how are you doing it? Share it with me, almost like we're having a cup of coffee and tell me what your experience was. So that was the, um, and, and of course, I personally gravitate towards nature-based learning, mm -hmm. towards, um, you, you know, working with social emotional skill building. So I found wild schooling approaches, unschooling approaches, so interesting and road schooling approaches. So I, I put out a call for that, and I was really astounded with how many people wrote back and, and said, I want, to, I want my story to be told, not because they thought it was the right way, but because they just wanted to share that it was a way. And really, that was one of the things that I felt was really powerful when I got the collection and I read them all together was that it was it was the homeschooling community saying, we are legitimate. This is a legitimate choice. This mm. is a real thing that you can do. And you can do it in any way that fits your family lifestyle. And some people were really thrown into this over the last couple of years during the pandemic, right? Yeah, I actually talked to Dr. Peter Gray. He works at Boston and, and um, he, he wrote Free to Learn. Really great book. 
Um, and he, he and I were talking for the interview for one of the chapters, and he said, you know, it has moved from about 2% nationally to 20%. And what's interesting is the pandemic pushed that number, but a lot of the people are choosing to stay in that area, to stay in that route saying it worked for us. This is really great. I, you know, it was the silver lining of the pandemic. It really helped us see that this might be a better fit for us. Katie, can I ask you, so you're into stories and you said that you, um, you, you didn't want to necessarily present the right way to do it. You just wanted to show how to do it. So what is your story? You, I, 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 in, I read the introduction to you and, you know, you have a PhD from FSU and you have, um, you know, you're teaching at um, Thomas College. And then it also says that you live in Maine with your husband, Eddie, and your two children, your two girls. And then it also says you have a bunch of dwarf Nigerian goats and salmon <laughs> favril <laughs> chickens, which, <laughs> but I want to hear what your story is. Can you tell us? about like your own, some of the own, you have a couple of chapters in there that you wrote yourself, right? Yeah, yes, I did. I wrote a chapter, I wrote the intro, the conclusion, kind of the, the bookends of the court of the, of the book, <laughs> if you will. Um, and yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a homestead up here. We both were from Florida. We moved up to Maine. That's a big and- move. <laughs> yeah, that's a big move. It, Everyone's like, why'd you leave Florida? I was saying, have you been in Florida in the summer? It's still like 110 degrees. <laughs> so, you know, it's a hot. But you it's went from hot. that to and being we buried, in, buried in sand to being buried in <laughs> snow in the middle of winter, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly. So we, we're enjoying the seasonal changes, that's for sure. So our homeschooling journey is really just starting. Our girls are kind of early childhood time period. Um, and, and I think I gravitated towards homeschooling, not only because I personally believe in it, I think it's a really great way of, of educating youth and, and being um, part of, the, uh, of your child's life in such a substantial and important way. Right. And, and I feel like it's a good choice for our family, but it also was interesting to me professionally because I, because I work in education, Mm -hmm. right. Um, Recognizing that for me, at the end of the day, my goal as an educator is to make sure that all children get what they need out of education, out of learning, out of the process. And for some children, homeschooling makes them thrive, makes them flourish, makes them who they are. They, you know, there's a chapter by Monet Poe in the book and she, her story about how she went from public schooling to homeschooling gave me goosebumps. And I just thought to all of the children who might have been in her shoes, she was um, diagnosed with learning disabilities early on. She was not, her needs were not met by the school system in a certain way. And I think about all the children who are in that kind of situation where their needs aren't being met, but their families don't know that homeschooling is a way to meet their needs in a really interesting and important manner. So I think that for, from the educator perspective, I was interested in it from almost like a different differentiation standpoint, like how to, how do we diversify the options for educating youth? But also from a personal standpoint of, I, 
I really believe in the ability to see growth one-on-one because even with two children, I mean, you guys know with, with four that every child is so different. What's one, one really craves structure. One really loves, you know, animals. The other doesn't likes being on the move, likes, you know, different things. So I think that that being able to be out and I also like the quip of not at homeschooling. <laughs> it's not necessarily mm-hmm. about setting up a school structure with periods and bells and whatever at home, but rather to do it in your own way, to do it so that the child is focused on well, what it is that they're interested in going with mm-hmm. through, the, through the learning process through their eyes and seeing what they're interested in. But yeah, we we have Nigerian dwarf goats. We love them. They're <laughs> kind of loud sometimes. <laughs> Our chickens are goats too are loud. <laughs> the chickens, I was going to say the chickens are loud. We have um, a flock of chickens in our backyard. We've got um, we've got a, a, a mixed flock. But we when we very first started out, we had a salmon favorel and her name was Griffin. And she was not the brightest <laughs> in the box. She, well... She took a dive in the pond and didn't come out. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. Are yours pretty smart or are they like the barnyard clowns? Well, we only have those in Silkies. One of my colleagues said, oh, "Oh, you have designer chickens. I said, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. We've never done Um, any Silkies. So the last, um, I have, we, your book like literally just came out three days just ago. We ordered out. a copy and we, we haven't even gotten the co- the hard copy yet. And I'm a hard copy person, but I'm looking at it on Kindle and, um, and the very last paragraph of your preface says, let's shift the paradigm together. Let's direct our energies away from competition and towards community, family, and nurture. Instead of asking where, whether our children are on grade level, we can wonder, do our children feel safe? Do our children feel loved, satiated, both physically and mentally? Are we letting them enjoy the magic of bees? Can you talk about that in your book and what what that magic of bees means? Yeah. So at the beginning of the preface, I kind of take an excerpt out of our own um, life where my eldest daughter runs to me going, Mama, Mama there's a honeybee, there's a honeybee and, and a squash flower. And, and she ran over to me and I said, oh man, there are so many things I can educate you about, about the squash flower. And I can tell you about pollination and I can tell you about um, the hexagonal shape of honeycomb and all these cool things. And then my, so my educator brain was going, going, going really fast. Like, oh, there's so much opportunity in this like live teachable moment, if you will. And, and then I paused and said, why am I ruining the magic? <laughs> the, no. the magic at this moment is observation of interest in these creatures. And by me going in and educating her, quote unquote, it would be taking away some of that impromptu magic, right? So, and I think that Sometimes in our need or want to do the best for our children to educate them, right? Like always, all the time. I mean, and this is both a teacher and a parent concept of not giving your child just enough time to live and experience and enjoy and reflect. Um, And maybe it's, you know, our go, go, go society that kind of forces us to want to give them as much information as possible. But uh, it was really just a moment of an aha moment for me 
in this one little snapshot of our life of, you know what, how about we just let her observe this buzzing insect, see where it goes, see what it does, see how it moves from flower to flower. And then, yeah, sure. If she's interested, she might say like, why is it going from flower to flower? And then I can maybe explain, right? But that would be intrinsically motivated conversation that would be be waiting for the question yeah i would be waiting for the question i would be informing her on her curiosity rather than forcing something and kind of like sucking the life out of it right so like we do that sometimes so and i think to some extent katie could you talk about I don't want to get too, I don't like bash the school system or anything, because some people do really need public education. Sure. You know, there's there's families that need to be able to use those resources that the that the society can that our society can provide. But can you talk a little bit as an educator about what school does in terms of forcing those hexagonal lessons down our kids throats and why that why that doesn't work? Yeah. So I think that, like you said, I think for some families, public schooling works and it works for them and it works for their children. And that, and that's a good thing. And then there are some kids who need the public school system and, and, and like you said, the resources for it, unfortunately, and this is uh, bigger than the teachers. It's bigger than the building administrators. It's building bigger than the principals. It's really almost this really high up top down piece of from testing accountability to scripted curriculum. You know, you walk into a classroom and the teacher says, well, I have to teach from so-and-so curriculum. I have to use this. So if it's not, if her kids in the classroom say, hey, I'm really interested in how chocolate is made or I'm really interested in what honeybees do, or I'm really interested in why wasps things hurt so much or right. Any kind of interest. I mean, have you, you guys know a 60 year old has a gajillion questions, right? But then all of a sudden, if you ask a 10 year old, they might have fewer questions. You get to a high schooler, they have even fewer questions because they've been almost trained to sit and know that the information is going to be given to them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. rather than like a passive reception. Now, Mm -hmm. there are exceptions. There are. There are there are exceptions. There are schools that don't do scripted curriculums. There are schools that are inquiry driven by the students, but I've found that that's not necessarily the norm and that's unfortunate. It's it's oftentimes, yeah, I do. And, and the teacher kind of is strapped, right? Like they're being told you need to use this curriculum. We bought it. We, we need to use it. Um, similarly, homeschoolers also buy curriculum and then find that mm-hmm. the curriculum doesn't really work for them because their kids are not interested in that thing. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sure one of us might open a curriculum and say like, oh, this is a chapter about something I have zero interest in. It's going to be a bore to, mm-hmm. or to you, read, teach it. Yeah, I don't know about you, but like over the years when I have opened up those curriculums and I see like, here's a teaching plan, I'm like, I don't want to do that. And that's not, I, I'm like, tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk about, so each of the chapters of your book, it, I mean, and I, I haven't had a whole lot of time to explore yeah. it because it's so new, but um, each of the chapters of your book is kind of like a, a snapshot 
of each person's style of doing it, right? right? You said not no, not doing it right, just doing it. Can you talk about the different, the, all the different types of curiosity-driven um, schooling that you have in your book? Absolutely. So well, my type A self wanted to shelve each chapter into like a category, right? Like the unschoolers and these chapters and the wild schoolers and these chapters and the road schoolers, world schoolers. And it didn't work that way, <laughs> unfortunately for my type A sense. And it was interesting because there were so many snippets of each kind of philosophy and approach in every family. So the, you know, one family might take some components of nature-based education and some components of unschooling and learn from that and make it fit for their own family. So I found that really to be quite interesting. Like, for instance, Joel Salatin, the Joel Salatin. I still remember going, oh, my God, he emailed me. Um, <laughs> and and I, 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 he, he um, you know, he's a root person. He's a like really farm schooling. He's really about being in the same place and learning deeply about that place and about growing and farming and, and entrepreneurship and all these different things. And then you have other families who are kind of tumbleweeds, the ones that find that they soak in everything like a sponge when they go to one place and then they're ready to move up, move and go to another place. And and that's also a legitimate thing, right? Like, I, I mean, after reading one of the world schooling chapters, I told my husband, like, let's go to France. And he was like, no, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> we're root people. We're people who really kind of, um, not to much, not to say that I wouldn't go to France, but I, it was, mm-hmm. It was more of like this philosophy that everyone had their own way of doing things. So you have people who world school for a living. They blog, they write about their world schooling. Allison Long is like that. She wrote about, she, you know, she, she runs a pretty successful blog and about how she travels the world. And one thing that was really quite interesting was that her in, in the book, she gave, gives an anecdote about how one of her sons came back um, and did uh, engage in public schooling for a little bit during the pandemic and corrected the teacher said, no, like I actually was there. This is what is happening in that location. So I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, what an interesting experience, right. To be able to say, Oh, wow. Like I've actually been there. This is what I learned from that place. Um, and then you have uh, the road schoolers and the world schoolers who show that it's not something that's only for the extremely wealthy family. It's someone, yeah. it's something that can be accessible if that's your goal, if that's your intention, if that's your um, value, right? Is being worldly, global, uh, really kind of soaking in through experience and things like that. And then there, so there are other mm-hmm. chapters about um, almost like more philosophy driven. Nicolette Stouter is the founder of World Wild Schooling. She talks about kind of the premises of wild schooling and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, but she, of course, incorporates some practical ideas as well. I think a lot of people that I talk to, they find themselves wanting to pick a style and then they feel like they have to have style loyalty or they have to like it's almost like a branding, like they oh, we're this type of schooler, but they're it's like you're you're giving permission, it seems like in your book, not to pick anything, Correct. Like to just whatever feels right. And I was looking at the uh, chapter 
called the child, the parent child apprenticeship, yeah. because anytime I see something that looks like parent child, I'm like, what is that? <laughs> oh, it's like an attachment thing. Um, and I mean, so can you, I'm just curious as a professional myself, can you talk about what you know about attachment and the relationships between the bonding, the bonding necessary that's necessary between kids and their parents and how that grows along with learning and curiosity sure like the learning and curiosity is just intrinsic to primates you know it is can you talk about that yeah absolutely so first of all one of the things that we we know about infants and toddlers is that actually it's almost like an interesting paradox the more they feel attached to you the more they feel safe the more they feel routine, the more they feel um, love and caring and cuddled, and they know that they can get that whenever, the more likely they are to be independent later on, the more likely they're going to be confident to be independent later on. Um, So that I think is an interesting piece that, you, you know, some scholars might argue with that. might say, yeah, you know what? Um, socialization through schooling is really imperative, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of times socialization really occurs mostly within the family, the nuclear family dynamic, particularly early on. The, the need for socialization, this is something that I always get hung up on is socialization, socialization, because you hear it all the time, right? Like whenever you hear, oh, you're a homeschooler, how do you socialize, um, right? It's, the, it's like almost, Right after you say homeschooling, the socialization question comes up. So I've dug a lot into socialization. And I think it ultimately what we know about humans, and you know this, right, is that the need for similar age, and it isn't same age, because the school system really kind of made that artificially, the, the whole grouping by right. age batches is really just because public schooling became a requirement and we need organized kids somehow right to the industrial revolution yeah. and women going into the workforce and all that right stuff. Yeah. right so we needed to like batch them somehow right and and how sir ken robinson says we we did it with the date of manufacture <laughs> by the age mm-hmm. uh, what's the date of birth yeah what's mm-hmm. the date of birth uh, so once they get to uh, middle age range middle middle grade level so like anywhere from 10 years old to 13 years old. And then you start to see the need to pull back the parent relationship, not necessarily that you're, you're not involved, but rather to really emphasize playing and interacting with peers around the same age block, if you will, um, to really engage with those social skills. And, and you'll see kids pull away from their parents to find out, okay, so what is what is my role? They're going to start asking questions like, what is my role in society? What is my role amongst similar age peers? How do I compare? And that's when you get um, all sorts of interesting things. So in terms of the the question that I asked about attachment relationships and the parent-child apprenticeship, there's something in that chapter about alloparenting. And I wondered if maybe you could talk a little bit about that, but I was so curious about what you were asserting in that chapter about the the bonding relationships and multiple parents well it was yeah absolutely so it's actually interesting because i think it was a way of almost reminding folks that you don't have to be a licensed educator to homeschool i think oftentimes uh, at least the parents that i talked to 
go, well, I would never be able to do it. I don't have your background. I don't have your knowledge on curriculum and instruction. And I have to tell them, you don't have to. You don't have to have this background in curriculum and instruction. You can listen to podcasts, right? You can listen to, to you can read books. You can do all these different things. Um, and when I was thinking about that, like, how do I answer that question in my chapter? Um, I was thinking, you know, well, it, it can be helpful to know historically how we learned as a species. There was not really a teacher that you send your kids to, right? That's a fairly modern phenomena. It's mm-hmm. only been around for about 200 years. Um, so really, it was almost a historical view, almost an anthropological view, if you will, of the human species of how we learn. We learned through oral storytelling. We learned over a real fire with food, and it was very communal. And so owl parenting is very, um, it's like ingrained in our, as a species, it's ingrained in the way that we function and how we teach our children. And and so owl parenting is um, other people, whether it's in your kind of smaller nuclear family or a really close friend, taking part in that education. It doesn't mean that they are choosing the way you parent, right? It's not Mm -hmm. that grandma and grandpa now have full reign on your kids or whatever, but it's rather to say, Hey, we're not just learning from one person. I am not the homeschooler learning from mom. I'm not the homeschooler learning from dad. I'm the homeschooler learning from my mom's friend who knows how to can, right. Or my, um, five, year old neighbor who loves dinosaurs and knows all about all the different sort of dinosaur names. I'm um, learning from grandma and grandpa about X, Y, and Z. I'm learning from, you know, the town officials about whatever, right? So it's, it's this idea of, yes, it's, it's, you also learn from the environment, right? Just going in and looking and and observing and tinkering. So um, that's where that came from. I love it. And, you know, it's kind of like, so when I think of aloe parenting, I think of like a, um, a, I picture like gorillas, you know, in the, in the jungle and they're, they're all the mama gorillas are sitting around and the kids are, the, the babies are playing and they're all, if a, if somebody's out of line, one mom will correct them and it, and it's fine. Right. And, and we're sort of in this mothering. And I think we could have a whole conversation around mothering too, around, um, group mothering like we were at the art museum the other day for a meetup and I looked around and I went where's so-and-so it was a kid I said where's so-and-so and 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 all the moms looked up and went like this and another one went over there um so we're all tracking and there's that's how we keep our children safe and then back to your point in the preface about safe children are children that are learning and feel curious and the more and the, the more emotional and relational and physical safety they have through allo parenting together as homeschoolers together, the the more they can um, feel curious and exploring, it activates those, those, the curiosity and the exploration in their brains. Um, So I just love that about your book. I mean, I, I can't tell, I'm just so excited about getting to read this whole book. Um, (laughs) I can't wait for our hard copy to come. Ultimately, homeschooling is a choice for you. It can be a choice for you. There's not a right way of doing it. You do not have to be a licensed educational professional to do it and to do it well. And I hope that you come away from this conversation. I hope you come away with the book if you choose to to get it uh, and feel free to email me also. Um, 
you come away knowing that there are lots of different ways. I hope you gravitate towards one of these chapters to say, oh, wow, this, this can work. This is my aha moment. This might work for me. And I hope that that legitimizes your choice and legitimizes your choice in talking to other people about it, talking to broader family about it. Really, at the end of the day, it's about choice and it's about advocacy and it's about saying, hey, for me and my family, this is what I'm going to do that I think will really help my child and my children flourish and thrive and become successful. Adults in the sense of not necessarily successful monetarily, uh, but also just happy, thriving um, social individuals who, who make choices, not because, you know, society says you really should be X, Y, and Z, but because they feel really confident in themselves Mm -hmm. and the choices that they make. Oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Your language is just so beautiful and inspiring and I can't wait to share your book with other people. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. Take care, guys. Thanks. It was fun. My conversation with Katie was so inspiring because she's writing from a perspective of homeschooling can be done in any way that you can imagine. There's there's any number of different permutations, iterations, whatever you want to call it, of, of ways to homeschool. There's not a right way. And that is what Any Schoolers Believes, too. Um, we're about anyone schooling in any way they want to and um, educating your children from your heart. Um, And that's what Katie is about. So we started with her book on our podcast because she really does echo the same things that we believe about our homeschooling families and the needs of the homeschooling community in the United States. And what we want outsiders, people who are not homeschoolers, to understand about what exactly homeschooling is. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited about the many projects that we have in the works for the podcast. We will have materials for adults, for children, and for teens, and maybe even by teens. Um, Join us next week for our next episode. This podcast is produced by anyschoolers.com.